This morning, our scripture passage is drawn from two passages, not three like last week. We have to rein ourselves in. So this week, we're going to be reading from Genesis 17, and then we're going to read two verses from the book of Acts chapter 2. Hear now the word of God from Genesis 17. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Now from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 38 and 39. After Peter's sermon that he gave, it says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this subject before us this morning is not one that everyone in this room necessarily sees eye to eye on, and yet we are all reading the same scripture together. And I am aware that I am not smart enough or wise enough to say just the right thing to change minds in this room, and so instead, our real desire is that you would speak, that everything I say would be true to your word, that we all would hear your voice, Would you be pleased to bring unity through your word by the power of your spirit? I pray that you would make us of one accord by being unified in the truth. Reveal that truth to us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Who is supposed to be baptized? Um. That's a question I didn't know it was an issue when I first became a Christian. Um, some of you may have grown up in a tradition of infant baptism where that was a normal thing. Uh, but I can honestly say I, I can't even think of a church within 20 miles of the little town where I grew up that would have done it except for the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and that would have settled it for me that you shouldn't do it. Um, you know, it was out, very much outside of my world and, and uh, outside of my experience to think of anything other than uh, a professing believer being baptized. Um, you know, all of us grow up in our, our little worlds, I suppose. But as I got older, I, I realized that nearly all of the theologians and preachers that I loved and respected practiced infant baptism. And while I was in high school, and, and especially when I was in college, I became enthralled by these questions. And I, I tried to answer the question, why do these men who seem to know the Bible so well, who seem to understand salvation so well, who, who faithfully preach the gospel of justification by faith alone, they believe in the necessity of faith for salvation, why do they want to baptize the children of believers? And, you know, I... 
all I could think was, surely they know that a child can't have faith. Why on earth are they baptizing these babies? They, they must just have this one area where they are just off their rockers. And, and I realized after a while that I brought a lot of assumptions to how I thought about this issue, right? For me, and certainly in the church where I was raised, in the Free Methodist and the Nazarene Church where I was raised, Baptism had always been about what the baptized person is saying about themselves. So I always saw baptism as my testimony. Uh, I saw baptism as my way of showing what I believed God had, had done in me. And so in a very real sense, what I did was I had this very subjective, self-centered view of, of baptism. I'm not saying that about everyone who believes in credo-baptism, but that was me. That was why I struggled to see it any other way. Um, I thought the purpose of baptism was really about me, that it was really about me speaking, about me saying something, about me doing something, and making sure that as many people as possible knew that about me. And I discovered that my, my testimony view of baptism was really only half the story, I realized that how you understand who should receive baptism depends on what you think baptism is. So it goes back a little further than I think we sometimes think. If you think baptism is meant to be a testimony that you believe and that you are now saved, it will be absolutely baffling to apply it to anybody other than a professing believer. Um, if you have spent your whole life thinking about baptism as something that's almost autobiographical, something that's meant to mark out your old life from your new life, seeing it in any other way is going to feel incredibly jarring, and it's going to make you think, man, those guys, they knew the Bible so well, but they're crazy on this one, right? And, and I was raised in that kind of context, which is part of the reason why I was baptized so many times, um, well, last week, we sort of tried to show from Scripture, baptism, what did we show? My main point last week was that baptism is a sign and seal of engrafting into Christ, washing from sin, admission to Christ's church, and membership in the covenant of grace. And I pointed out that the, the efficacy of baptism is not tied to the moment when it's administered, right? We don't have a magical view of the sacraments, that when they are touched, when they're received, then all the things that are included there necessarily come to pass in the moment when they happen. Um, otherwise, here's what you could do. You could actually tell the Holy Spirit what to do simply by giving somebody a sacrament. You could tell the Holy Spirit what to do. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, look, the Holy Spirit blows where he wills, right? We, he, his point is that regeneration is outside of our control. The work of the Holy Spirit is outside of our control. And, and just like the winds, we cannot predict what he will do. We can't control him. Now, I already sort of belabored that baptism signifies and seals these things. And I, I also really belabored between last week and the week before that baptism does not make these things so. Only faith truly does that. Faith is the thing that's being pointed to in the sacraments all the time. So I won't keep belaboring that point, but I'm just trying to give you a bit of a review so that we're all on the same page this morning. But if baptism is what I argued last week, then look what follows. This sacrament is not about us and what we've done, or what we think, or what we do. It is instead about what God has done 
and whose we are, which is a very different way of thinking about the sacraments. And so our subject is, is big this morning, um, but the outline itself is simple, right? The, the, the outline is just, first, baptism is for believers, and then second, baptism is for their children. Um, it's just two points, but full disclosure, I'm going to spend way more time on the second point than I am on the first point. But, um, so if you love symmetry, this message is just going to drive you crazy. Uh, we are not symmetrical this morning. So let's just go move forward. Let's just go right to this. First, we should be persuaded from Scripture that baptism is for believers in Christ. We need to be persuaded of that, that baptism is for believers. Um, this is in keeping with the, the first person to receive the sign of the covenant of grace. That was Abraham. Um, if you were using your family worship guides this week, then, then you would have read from Genesis 17 where God institutes circumcision. And in Romans 4.11, Paul tells us that Abraham was circumcised in response to his faith. So what, that, what Paul is saying there is that Abraham did believe before he was circumcised. He's circumcised only after his faith. His, his faith came prior to getting the sign. And it wasn't just Abraham the Gentile who received the sign of the covenant. In Judaism in general, those who were previously outside of the covenant would also receive the sign of the covenant. And, of course, that sign was circumcision. By the time you come to the New Testament, God's people were placing their faith in Christ. They're joining the exact same covenant Abraham was part of. What does Paul say in Galatians 3.7? He says, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So Paul is saying, hey, that covenant that God started in Genesis 17, it's still happening. We are, we're brought right into it. We're part of it too. We're participating in it and we're doing it by faith. And so if you believe in Jesus, even today, in 2023, what is Paul telling us? He's making an application even for us today. You are a son of Abraham. You might not have a drop of Jewish blood going through you, but you are part of the covenant now. And the book of Acts is, is filled with people who profess faith in Jesus and they are subsequently baptized, right? People who came from outside the covenant of grace, uh, they became part of the covenant of grace. Whether you were Jew or whether you're Gentile, they all received the same baptism. And I think the most obvious example of this is, is Acts chapter 2 verse 41. It says, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, right? This is a mass baptism event. Um, these are people who believed, and because they were part of God's people by faith, they received baptism. Uh, we saw this last week. Part of what baptism means is that we are received into the visible church of Christ. We're visibly identified with Jesus, and with his people when we get baptized. And this means that what is already true in our heart is meant to be something that becomes visible by having the sign applied. And so if you have professed faith and if you have been baptized as a consequence of your profession of faith, then you're like Abraham. You should see yourself in Abraham in some sense. You receive the sign after you believe. There's precedent for this in Scripture. This is a good thing. It is good to profess faith in Jesus and receive the sign of the covenant. In other words, this is a church where we believe in credo baptism. 
right? Credo uh, just means I believe, and we believe in baptism because people believe. So that is one positive thing we want to affirm. We believe in credo baptism in our church because that is what Scripture teaches. But our second point is one that we're certainly going to spend more time on because I would be surprised if there's anyone in this room who defends the no-baptism view. I don't think there's anyone that holds to no-baptisms. My grandmother's the only person I ever knew who believed that that believers shouldn't be baptized, Um, which I shouldn't have brought that up without telling you the whole story. Sorry. You can ask me about it afterwards. Um, But if you have been baptized but have not yet professed faith, or if you were baptized as a child and then you later professed faith, well, guess what? You're not like Abraham. You're like Abraham's sons. So you're going to associate more with Abraham's sons who got the sign and then believed. Abraham believed then got the sign. But for most of, of the history of God's people, it was not that order. It was you got the sign, then you believed. Right? So you're more like Abraham's children. Um, So I want you to see right off the get-go that both of these applications of the sign of the covenant were legitimate, right? Whether you're baptized before or whether you're baptized afterwards, or not, sorry, whether whether you receive the sign of the covenant before or you receive the sign of the covenant afterwards, they're both legitimate. They're the same sign. They point to the same covenant, even if the timing of the application is varied. And so if you were you know, we're going to bring it up to our present day context. If you receive the sign of the covenant before you believe, you have a lot in common with Abraham's sons. Now, we need to pause before I go further, because this is what I don't like about topical sermons, which, of course, this is a topical sermon. As listeners, it can feel like you are having a lot of verses thrown at you at once. I know what that outline looked like last week. Um, and here's what can happen if you are a, a listener or if you're a reader in a moment like this. You can say, he's taking a scattershot approach. He's just, he can't stay in one place. He's got to go all over the place. And so <clears throat> I've been very concerned to make what we say something that, that anyone can follow and doesn't feel like they have to put together one of those giant conspiracy charts where there's a string coming from each verse to another verse. Um, and so I, I, ha, I, I, I spent far more time on this message than I did on any other. And the thing I kept going back to was, this needs to be simple. And I think that it needs to be geared towards somebody who's skeptical of our practice. And so... I want to approach this potentially unwieldy subject from the perspective of a skeptic of infant baptism, which is how I approached it as a curious college student, right? Um, You know, I asked the question of, I'm sitting here in the pews, and I wasn't persuaded that the New Testament practice was for believers to baptize their children. What would it take to convince me? And I've had conversations before um, where you ask the question, what would it take to persuade you that it's a biblical to baptize children. And some of the requests are, can be over the top, right? Um, some people have said, look, I want to see an infant baptism in the New Testament. I want to see an apostle pick up a baby, and I want to see them pour water on the baby's head. And I want a description of that. Um, then I'll be convinced, you know. 
Um, and yet what happens in the New Testament? What is the New Testament filled with? It's missionary activity, right? It's a massive moment of massive expansion of the kingdom. And you don't see directly narrated any infant baptisms in the text. Not directly, right? You don't have a verse that says, Peter picked up the child and lo, he poured the water or, or something like that, which I admit would make this a lot simpler. But here's the other thing you don't see in the New Testament. You also don't see any women in the New Testament give birth except Mary and Elizabeth. Right? There are not a lot of babies just waiting to be baptized in the, in the New Testament. Um, you've got no newborn babies in the narrative and certainly the focus isn't even on the babies. The assumption in the New Testament is life is going on like usual. People are having kids. People are having babies. There are a lot of little kids running around in Israel. And so if your request is from the Christian today wanting to have a narrative of an infant baptism of the New Te- in the New Testament, that's a very tall request indeed. We don't even have births in the New Testament. Um, but as I thought about this big subject, here's what I hope would be convincing. Or at least I hope this might move the needle for some of you and help you see sort of, I think, is, I think is the reasonableness of infant baptism. Here's the first. And you can actually see these as subpoints under the second. Here's the first. While the sign of the covenant signifies and seals salvation, the nature of the covenant of grace is not that all of its members are necessarily saved. So, Just to be a member of the covenant of grace does not necessarily mean that you are saved. I'm going to make an argument for that. But, but, you know, if baptism brings you into the covenant of grace, the big concern a lot of people have is, but you don't know that that person you're baptizing is saved. You don't know that that child is saved or even that that child is going to be saved. So you can't give them the sign. And, And my answer is this first point here. That's not the nature of the covenant of grace. The nature of the covenant of grace is not that every person who comes into it is necessarily saved. I'm going to talk about what that means. The second piece that I think would, help, would have helped me when I was exploring these questions is this. Children were seen as part of the covenant from the beginning. So if you follow that first point, and then you see that children were seen as part of the covenant from the beginning, the second piece will fall right into place. And then the third thing that I would have found very helpful and that was pointed out to me far too late in my life was this. We do see household baptisms in the New Testament, and we see household baptisms in the early church, and we see it happening rapidly after the spread of the gospel. And so by implication, we have baptism of members of households who don't explicitly profess faith. We do have that in the New Testament. And I'm going to show you that when we get to that section. So let me just tiptoe us through these, and then by the end, we'll we'll see whether or not we've moved the needle for for any of you. Uh, I hope so, but we'll see. First, the covenant of grace is a saving covenant, but it is not salvation itself. It's the first thing I want you to see. Um, We've already shown what baptism means. We saw that baptism is an act of God formally receiving someone into the covenant of grace. Um, Paul said in Galatians 3, 7, it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham we know that the sons of Abraham gave the sign of the covenant to their children. Um, we've already seen that the covenant of grace didn't include just those who believe the promise, but that it also included their children, even before their children had a chance to believe. So, you know, part of the resistance to infant baptism may be that we may have conditioned ourselves to think 
that if someone receives the sign of the covenant, then it must mean they are saved. We think that. We think if they receive the sign of the covenant, then it must mean that they're saved. And we don't want to say that about a child, right? Because we don't believe in baptismal regeneration, right? Um, when, you know, after all, we don't, want to, we don't want to say that. And so then we say, well, then we, we shouldn't say that a child can be part of the covenant. And I think that's an overcorrection. When you look at scripture, that's just not the way children are considered in, in Israel. What was this? Was this the case in Israel? Was a circumcised person in Israel considered saved just because he was part of the covenant? Did Jews think that? Did Jews think that if you were circumcised, you would be saved? Did the New Testament authors think that? Did Jesus think that? Did Jesus think that all circumcised people were saved? Sometimes the, the Israelites did slip in their way of thinking about this, right? So you, you'll have the prophets being raised up to confront that exact mindset whenever it came up in Israel. You see God telling his people, you've got to have circumcised hearts, you see him telling them that, that physical circumcision isn't enough. He's, he's telling them that he hates the formality of their sacrifices. He says, your sacrifices stink to high heaven. Because even though you're doing the thing, your heart's not in the thing. You see Paul saying, not all Israel is Israel. Right? Paul is actually saying, just because someone is circumcised does not mean they are part of Israel. Just because someone outwardly participates doesn't mean their heart's in it, and it doesn't mean that they're redeemed or born again necessarily. The same message that was was relevant to uh, circumcised people is relevant to baptized people as well. We need to hear that message, don't we? You're baptized? Big deal if you don't love God and you don't put your faith in Christ. If, If you don't love Jesus, then the baptism water is wasted water, no matter when you got baptized. Um, That's a message that you need to hear, whether you were baptized at two months or two years or 17 years or 40 years. Being in the covenant doesn't equal being saved. It never meant that. It's not meant to mean that. It didn't mean that in Abraham's time. It didn't mean it at any point in the Old Testament, nor does it mean that in the New Testament. Here's what our confession does summarize the covenant of grace as. Listen to this summary. This is what our confession says. It is the covenant wherein God freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring them of, of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So the, the covenant of grace is not the message, you are saved. It is rather the promise, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the covenant of grace. Now, I, I think we would be, we'd be less skittish about baptizing our children if we understood that. That baptism is not the message, this child is saved. I've never baptized a child and said that. I would not baptize a child and say that. Um, instead, the message is, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. This child is marked with that message and that promise, that precious promise believe on the Lord Jesus, and all his life, what is that child going to do? He is going to hear over and over again that promise and that message and that call to believe. Um, Being in the covenant means all sorts of benefits, even if it doesn't mean salvation itself. Being baptized, being received as a member of the covenant still means having the promises, the oracles of God. It means hearing God's word repeatedly. It means having the Savior set before you. It means living as set-apart people. 
It means being part of God's visible church. It means having God's ordinary means of grace as a regular, consistent part of your life. All of them screaming in your ear, believe on the Lord Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus. It means knowing in an intimate way the call of God, that we are supposed to trust in His Son, the Savior of sinners. Being a member of the covenant of grace is a great blessing, and it includes benefits that we scarcely can appreciate because we enjoy them so consistently and so often that we may forget what it is the people out there, the people who are outside the covenant of grace, what they don't get and what they need so desperately. And yet, we would be wrong to settle for merely being in the covenant. That would be like having a family name and never claiming your inheritance. We have to reach out to what the covenant of grace leads us to, faith in Jesus Christ alone. When a child is baptized, he is baptized because he is a member of the covenant, because one of his parents at least is a believer. This was true in Judaism, it is true now. But what do we believe when the child is baptized? We believe that it is incumbent upon that child to believe in the Lord Jesus. And we believe that it is incumbent upon the parents to make promises and to endeavor to disciple this child. And and the church commits to encourage this child to trust in Christ. God also marks the child with the sign and the seal of all that baptism represents. But the call to faith, the call to believe, never stops for the rest of that baptized person's life, regardless of when they receive that sign. second part of my argument is that children were seen as part of the covenant from the beginning. Children were seen as part of the covenant from the beginning. You see that with the first household to receive the sign of the covenant, right? Abraham's household in Genesis 17, all the male members of the household receive the sign of the covenant. Now, the little girls are part members of the covenant too, but they don't have the sign. They're part of the covenant, but they don't have the sign. Paul says that Abraham received the sign because he believed in the promise of God. But God's command wasn't just for the believing one in the household to receive the sign. God doesn't say, Abraham, when your son gets older and you have taught him about the covenant and you have told him about my promises and you've told him about that I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people and then your son says, I believe, then circumcise him. He doesn't do that. He says, no, he is a member of the covenant, circumcise him. We know that the sons were circumcised, that this practice continued. Even Jesus, even Jesus the scripture tells us himself, was circumcised on the eighth day. So they, they kept, all the ways that Jews may have failed to worship God, failed to love God throughout their history, it seems that one thing they kept up and maintained without fail was that they kept up the practice of circumcision. And they applied that covenant sign to children, even though they didn't yet believe. Now at this point... An important question needs to be reckoned with. If you think that with the coming of Jesus, that practice stopped. You say, look, they, they did this all the whole history of Israel, but now you get to the New Testament, and that stopped. Um, if the Jewish people for centuries and millennia considered their children to be part of God's covenant people, imagine if that totally changed with the coming of Jesus. Imagine that when Christ comes, the message is now... 
your children are outside of the covenant until they profess faith in the coming Savior. Imagine if that was actually the New Testament message. I think God's people, those who had, had been his people all of these years, I think would have fairly said, wait a minute. We were always called to believe in the Savior. Ever since the time of Abraham, that hasn't changed. And we were always in the covenant. Uh, and while in that covenant, we, we were called to believe. But it used to be that our children were part of the covenant. They got the sign of the covenant. And then we taught them to believe in the coming Savior from within that covenant. Now that the Savior has come, why would that fundamentally change? And if it did fundamentally change, why didn't you tell us? It would have been a big change. This would have been a ground-swelling shift for God's people to hear a message that said, we know that your children used to be part of the covenant, but now they are outside the covenant until they bring themselves into it by faith. Instead, we see that from the beginning, the children of believers were welcomed. They were part of God's people. They were raised and instructed and, and catechized in the faith to grow up into the covenant of which they were a part. Let me suggest that there are no scriptural indications that that practice has fundamentally changed. There's no evidence in the New Testament that the status of children has now changed from the days of Abraham. Instead, you see the disciples wanting to focus on adults. And what does Jesus do? He says, bring those children to me. Let me bless them. Let me lay hands on them. In other words, let these children hear the ministry of the word. Let them be part of what they're part of already. They're part of God's people too. They're not outsiders. Eventually, they'll get brought in. Instead, he says, they belong here with me. Third, I want to take you to the practice of household baptisms. Here's what you might wonder after all of this, right? You might be thinking, you know, you've said that the children were part of the covenant in the Old Testament, and, and that didn't change in the time of the apostles. Is this how the church thought about this? Is this how the church functioned? Is this, is this what they said? Is this how they acted during the, the time of the New Testament? Is there any indication that believers actually baptized their children now, I will uh, admit to you what I said before. We don't have any Christian women who are already converted, getting, uh, having their child baptized after birth. And, you know, I've already said, I think that's a tall order considering you don't have any childbirths taking place in the New Testament that we know of explicitly. But the New Testament does have something that I think it's less direct, but in my opinion, it's very powerful, which is the practice of household baptisms. While you, you can't find any women in Scripture giving birth except Mary and Elizabeth, you can find families who were Gentiles converting to Christ, joining the covenant of grace, and all of them being baptized. And that's ex that is the, the place where we do see this exact practice of whole households receiving the covenant sign right before our eyes, which is exactly what you would expect if the old pattern of applying the covenant sign to your children continued in the New Testament. So you may not see a baby held up, but you see a whole household baptized. Um, let me show you this from Scripture, so I'm not just talking vaguely. I want you to see this for yourself. Now, I'm no longer talking about circumcision. I'm talking about baptism. Household baptisms are actually more frequent than you might think. In 1 Corinthians 6.16, Paul says that he baptized the household of Stephanus. In Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer's household is baptized. In Acts 16.15, uh, 
Lydia said is to have believed and then been baptized with her household. In Acts 18.8, we're told that Crispus and his family were baptized. And so we have at least four instances of household baptisms in the New Testament. Um, In the case of Crispus, in Acts chapter 18, his family is baptized, and the faith of his family is explicitly expressed. So in, in Acts chapter 18, we're actually told that every member of the household believed, and every member of the household was baptized. Several times, though, the text just says that the household was baptized. It leaves it at that. It doesn't tell us who in the household believed necessarily, or it'll tell us that one member of the household believed. Um, In fact, I really want to draw your attention to Acts 16, because you may remember the story of the Philippian jailer, how the earthquake came and the, the jail cells were opened, and he was sure that the apostles had run for it, because why wouldn't they? And, and then they say, no, we're still here, and he can't believe it, and he is, God ministers the gospel to this man through the apostles. And so they hear the gospel, and they believe it, and, and this man hears the gospel, and he believes it, and I just want to read you the narrative of the jailer because I think there's something significant here. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, to all who were in his household. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So, so notice something that in Acts chapter 18, it tells us that every member of the household believed the gospel and that they were all baptized. And in this passage, it says that this man believed, his family was baptized. The text tells us his entire household rejoiced, but what did they rejoice in? They rejoiced that he had believed in God. The only person in this passage that it explicitly says believed in God was the jailer himself. His whole household has heard the word, his whole house is baptized, but he is the one who, the text says, believed in God. Now, is it possible that his family, to a person, all believed? That every time we see all of these households baptized, Every member of the household is explicitly expressing belief in God, and there are no babies in any of these households. It's possible. But look, as far as Luke is concerned, the fact that the husband believed is sufficient ground for the family to be baptized apart from any reference to their faith. Why? Because for the New Testament authors, household baptisms are as ordinary as household circumcisions would have been. Right? We take seriously the fact that in the New Testament times, family solidarity was a very real concept. In fact, we need to think about this just for a moment. One commentator talks about the, the difficulty we have today, even thinking about the idea of a household baptism, because for us, we're modern individualists. And we believe that each individual is supposed to have a say in in their own voice in the family. And yet, we need to be challenged in that way of thinking, especially when we're looking at the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, that is simply not the way that they thought of individuals or families during that time period. Listen to what this commentator says. 
if we wish to understand biblical texts rightly, we must radically free ourselves from modern individualistic thinking. And in particular, keep before our eyes the fact that the family represented by the father of the household was in old times much more strongly experienced as a unity than today. People felt the solidarity, the mutual responsibility, and the unity of the group. All important questions were decided by the father of the household, and his decision was binding on all. In particular, in its relation to God, the household was a unity. Correspondingly, it was normal for the ancient mind to regard the faith of the father of the household as decisive. If a household broke away from the old religious community and embraced a new religion. We don't normally think of it that way today, right? If you have a family of five and the husband converts to Christianity, I think we struggle to think about the family also coming into the faith because we just think, well, everyone's going to do what they want. Well, that wasn't the New Testament mentality. That wasn't the New Testament mindset. And so if, if household baptism seems strange to us, it may be that we think more like modern individualists than we do like the people who lived in New Testament times. The Philippian jailer trusted in Jesus, and he was the head of the household. And what happened? His family was baptized. Uh, Lydia, who it appears was the head of her household, trusted in Christ, and what happened? Her household was baptized. Even if you grant that their household did believe, which is an assumption that's not explicitly there in the text except in Acts 18, this is the way Luke reports it, Because he reports what matters to him and what matters to his readers. What matters to them? The head of the household believed. There's a solidarity of the family in baptism. And the other members of the household don't get to decide the matter for the rest of the family. Uh, Even if there were holdouts in the household. In the early church, the head of the household decided these things for the rest. I want you to know we also see it. Not just in the New Testament, we also see it in the earliest years of the church. Uh, I can give you citations for what I'm about to say, but I'm not going to give those now. If you ask for me later, I'll give them to you. But in the early church, we see that infants were baptized extremely early on. We have evidence of infant baptism from within 100 years of the resurrection. Uh, You have Hippolytus, who left us the first full... A liturgy for the church, and he tells us that families who were being admitted to the church were baptized. First, the children, including infants, who could not yet answer the baptismal questions. And then those who could answer the baptismal questions followed, the adult males, and then finally the women were baptized. Um, Tertullian also provides evidence of this in the ancient African church. We have other evidence as well of infant baptism. And so, I could give that to you, but I'm not going to just fill our time with that. I think the scripture is what's most important. That's why I want to focus on that. Um, But I hope what you see here, and I hope that I've been able to convey it well enough, that scripture, scripture is what's decisive. It's scripture that decides these things. I think it's still helpful to see from scripture that household baptism was not a late invention of the medieval church. It wasn't invented by the Roman Catholic Church. It was started at Pentecost, and it continued in the early church. But even if you look at the scripture, you don't care what happened after the New Testament. We still have numerous examples of families being baptized. Stephanus, Crispus, Lydia, the Philippian jailer. All of them were baptized. Why? Because the practice of family solidarity didn't disappear with the coming of Jesus. 
because the children of believers were and are considered to be part of the covenant of grace, and so they should receive the sign. Now, it it shouldn't surprise us that the vast majority of the baptisms we see in the book of Acts are credo-baptism. If if your emphasis is really on credo-baptism, you're going to find a lot of it in the New Testament. Um, Those being baptized who profess faith, they've never been baptized before, you see a lot of that at a time of such missionary explosion where thousands of people are hearing the gospel for the first time. They're hearing about Jesus for the first time. And so you have so many examples of this. And you only have a handful of household baptisms. But Christians from the beginning baptized new believers who were converted into Judaism and were Gentiles. We do indeed believe in what is known as as credo-baptism here. We believe in baptizing believers. We practice it joyfully. We practice it gladly. In fact, to be quite honest, I'm overjoyed at baptizing the children of believers, but there are very few things to me more exciting than baptizing someone who has publicly said, I believe, I once was lost, but now I'm found. There is a thrill to that. And I used to say that I was more excited about that than I was about infant baptisms. I don't actually believe that anymore because here's what is exciting about an infant baptism. After an infant baptism, I, I trust the Lord that in a few years we're going to do something just as exciting. Because one of my favorite thing is, things is when a baptized child comes to the session of the church and says, I believe in the Lord Jesus. I believe in the Lord Jesus. They make that profession of faith. They say, I trust And so what you get to see as the pastor is sort of from the cradle to the grave, sort of a beauty of of the way that that life is meant to be, that yes, they're admitted to the church, they're formally brought in, but then you want to see that thing that's signified in baptism become real. What do you want to see? I want to hear a child say, I love the Lord Jesus. I believe in the Jesus that my parents have taught me and that the the pastor has preached from the pulpit and that the elders have taught me and that I've heard in Sunday school. I believe these things. I'm not just part of a community, but I actually believe that this is true. And so one of my favorite things in the whole world is hearing that profession of faith, admitting a child as a communing member of the church, because you see, faith is, faith is really the goal, not getting a person wet. Um, that still matters. And if it didn't matter, Jesus wouldn't tell us to do it. But what we really want is we want to see heart change. And we want to see that profession of faith. And we want to see it worked out throughout that person's life so that they are a lifelong disciple. That's what we want. We want lifelong discipleship. And so I have three challenges for you all this morning, depending on who you are, depending on your situation. The first is this, if you're an unbaptized believer, please come to me. Uh, Come to the elders of the church and tell us about your faith in Jesus and tell us about your desire to be baptized, to be received as part of Jesus' church and and talk to us about your desire to receive the sign of the covenant. Um, If you have not been baptized, it is really important that you obey God's command and that you be baptized. Um, I think that's a simple application from this sermon. I think that I don't know anyone who would disagree with that. The second is, is if you have children who have not received the sign, I would love for you to be persuaded from Scripture that God calls you to give the sign of the covenant to your children. Not because you presume that they're saved, but because the promise is for you and your children. The promise is for them too. And they should receive the sign of the promise. And then third... One last application I want to mention. 
Uh, I made reference to it when we first started. You actually heard it in the song that we sang before the service. Uh, my application is this. It's the old command the Puritans used to call improving your baptism. And, and by that, they meant remember what your baptism means and remember what God is calling you to in it. Um, God has great aspirations for covenant members than to just receive the outward symbol. Um, Jeremiah 9.25, God says, Behold, the days are coming when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. I'll punish those who are merely circumcised in the flesh. And, and I, think, I think that has a direct application to us. I think God would say, Don't stop giving the sign of the covenant to your children, but remind them that my sign is not meant to be skin deep. It's not meant to be skin deep. The very same aspiration that God held out to the, to the covenant children in the Old Testament, we hold out to our own covenant children as well, don't we? Don't just be marked with the sign of the covenant. Believe the promise of the Savior that the sign is pointing you to. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, in faith we believe that you have spoken to us by your word. I pray that in the coming week that your people would be moved to delve deeper into your word to hear what it is that you have truly said to us here. Make us Bereans who ask the question, oh God, did you say it? Did you speak? And then make us faithful to respond. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our God is faithful. He is kind. He shows it to us by giving us covenant signs. In fact, let's prepare to celebrate the meaning of baptism with the application of baptism that he actually says he saved us by the washing of regeneration. This is another example of what we talked about last week. Jesus holds up the bread and says, this is my body, right? Peter says, baptism now saves you. And here Paul is, and he talks about the washing of regeneration. Again, the sign is not the thing that makes it happen. And yet... Very, very, in a very real way, he's willing to speak of them together as though they are the same thing. He's assuring these baptized people of the promise of God by pointing to their baptism. I think there's something here for you, especially if you've been baptized already. When we think of our baptism, we should think of those realities that our baptism points to. If we trust in Christ, we should think of ourselves as washed and cleansed people. That's why it's important for us to reflect on the meaning of baptism. This is not just an academic exercise. This is not just a church polity thing. This is about us and and our daily walk with God. How do we wrestle with sin? How do we wrestle and struggle in our daily life? One of the tools that God is giving us, putting in our quiver, is to remember our baptism. He's calling on us to remember what it means. He's calling us to remember the promises that he's made to us. He's he's calling us to cling to those things and to love those things. Baptism also means union with Christ. Throughout the scriptures, the writers are reminding us that when we place our faith in Christ, we ourselves find ourselves united to him by faith. Every time you see the Bible speak of being in Christ you are seeing union with Christ being set forth before you and it is the most practical, it's the most practical doctrine I can think of in scripture. Even though it might be a little challenging for us to understand, it's all over the place. 
if you look up how many times the scripture speaks of being in Christ, you will just, you could read all year long and read all the verses and read the surrounding context and find yourself very busy. Um, scripture will speak of the sign, again, as if it is the thing that it signifies. And so we call that sacramental union. I want to give you an example from Romans 6.3. Paul asks a question. He says, Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So he's pointing to baptism of the, of the person. He's pointing to the baptism of his readers. And he's saying, When you were baptized, you were united to Christ such that his death became your death. His death became your death. You died. You died when you were baptized because you were united to a dead man. You were united to Jesus. The Colossians 2.12 does something similar. There, Paul, is says, Paul says that these uncircumcised people have actually been circumcised. Why? Their Savior was circumcised. They've received a sign of the covenant too. They've been baptized. He tells them that. He says, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith. He says, you were buried with him in baptism, you were raised with him as well. This is all union with Christ language. All of it, he's going back to the baptism as the, the focal point for why they can believe that they're united to Christ. And so in your baptism, Christian, take joy in the truth that is being communicated. You are united to Jesus Christ by faith alone. Baptism is the sign. It's the seal of that reality, but it doesn't happen apart from faith. And so here's what it does do, though. It assures you in a tangible way that it's all true. So you're able to look back at this definitive point and say, I know that it's true that if I place my faith in Christ, even today, I will be saved. I'll be united to Christ. I'll be rescued. I'll be redeemed. This is my daily call. Not just a one-time call. This is my life now because I've been marked by the sign. There are so many more things we can say about baptism, but I want to mention one more. Again, very practical and again from the text. Um, baptism represents union with other believers. I mentioned that it's union with Christ. Um, I hope this actually makes sense to you. When we are united to Christ and when other believers are united to Christ, we are united to Christ and we're united to each other. We have the same Christ. We have the same uh, people. We have the same family now. Look at the way that, that Paul, Paul does this. In 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, it, it says this so well. It, it's this passage about the family of God and how different we are. And in the midst of, of all of us being so different from each other, he says that in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. Well, in baptism, notice what happens. We get the same sign. We get the same seal. We, we have one baptism, remember? We're, we're all, we all receive the same Jesus. We receive the same baptism. And in that reality, we have union with each other. We have union with each other. In baptism, and what, symbolize, what it symbolizes, we become closer than a physical family. Being, being part of the family of God is deeper than your own physical blood family because we're united to each other in Christ. And Paul, Paul speaks of baptism as this meaningful sign and seal of that thing that we have together that we don't have with the rest of the world. 
You know, I'm not one body with anybody else out there who doesn't profess faith in Jesus. I'm just not. We're, we're different families. And there's something really beautiful and glorious about that, too, that I can go and I can hang out with my Baptist brothers. I can go and hang out with my uh, Anglican brothers and maybe even some Methodist brothers. Uh, <laughs> like, I could go and be with them, and we are one family. We don't belong to the same denomination. We don't have identical views. We don't have the same exact confession of faith. But, but we have the Lord Jesus in common, and we have him, and we're united to him together. There is something beautiful about that. These are all baptized people. They're all people who bear the mark of Jesus upon them, as different as they may be from us. Baptism is a passive experience. Isn't that interesting? Something gets done to us as the person who's being admitted as a member of the covenant. And, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit because I have to get ahead of myself in all of these lessons. But that is so different from the Lord's Supper. We're going to see this in a couple of weeks, but... Uh, it's not that we observe the sacrament of the Lord's Supper by our own power, but the Lord's Supper does require engagement of the heart, engagement of the mind of the person receiving it. Um, you have these, these long instructions on uh, how to exercise faith as we're receiving the sacrament, um, these instructions on the wrong way to receive the Lord's Supper. And, and guess what? In Scripture, you just don't have anything like that about baptism. Right? Unlike the Lord's Supper, you don't have any passages where the apostles are like, consider uh, what your baptism means as it's happening. You need to make sure that you do this rightly. Um, there are no texts about pe- warning people about being baptized apart from faith like we find with the Lord's Supper. Um, 1 Corinthians 11 warns us of partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Guess what? There's no text like that about baptism. Um, isn't that interesting? You know, we should, we should baptize rightly. But there's no warning for the person being baptized that they need to discern what's happening in their baptism. There's no passage that's saying, you need to examine yourself before you're baptized. We have that with the Lord's Supper. Why is that? Baptism is about something happening to you, being done by God. It's not you actively participating like you find in the Lord's Supper. And this means that spiritually, scripturally speaking, baptism is, that baptism is not primarily a means of testimony by the one baptized. For years, that's what I thought it was. For years, I thought baptism is about me saying what I believe is true about me. And that's why I had to be baptized so many times. I, was, I wanted to say something about me, and I wanted, to be, I wanted it to be true when it was done. And I missed the fact that baptism is, is, is about God's testimony about who he is to us. And who he calls us to be because of who he is. Right? Baptism is something given by God. Baptism is, is rich in meaning, as you can see. And we barely scratched the surface this morning. But baptism is a great blessing. I need to end on a point of warning. Because I suspect most of you in this room have been baptized. Paul is very careful to point out that Abraham had faith before he was circumcised. And Paul made a big deal about that fact too, right? His point in doing that was that circumcision was a sign, but it wasn't salvation. Circumcision pointed to salvation, but it wasn't salvation. And the same thing is true of baptism. And I want you to take this to heart. Baptism is a blessing. It is rich. Jesus gave it to us. Of course, it is an an immense blessing. 
Baptism is a sign. It isn't salvation. Circumcision was a sign. It wasn't salvation. We should be baptized. Our children would be, we should be baptized. Preview for next week. But we should never feel secure simply because we've been baptized. There is no security apart from faith in Jesus Christ alone. Anything other than Jesus is a weak foundation to build upon. We should not teach our children to believe that they are secure simply because they have been baptized. The call goes so much deeper. You know, God tells the Israelites that he hates an uncircumcised heart. And just like God hates an uncircumcised heart, he hates an unbaptized heart. If you are outwardly baptized and you feel secure because you've been baptized, you need to remember what your baptism represents and what it is meant to drive you to. It is driving you to Jesus. And if you do not go where it's driving you to, then you have not reached him. It doesn't represent salvation apart from faith. Instead, baptism represents the covenant of grace, which is a covenant of faith. It is a covenant that calls us to believe on the Lord Jesus and to rest in the promises of God that are yes and amen in Christ alone. Let's pray. Oh God, we... We trust that you have spoken to us today. Would you be pleased, O God, that in our conversations, the conversations between your people today, in the meditations of our own heart in the coming weeks, cause us to reflect on your word, and like Bereans, cause us to ask whether what we have heard truly reflects the teaching of your word. Grant us your spirit so that we can know and see and believe and practice the truth. Help us to follow these sacraments to where they point. Help us not to camp out at them. Help us to repent and to believe and to be regenerated and washed in the blood of Jesus Christ by faith alone. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.